Some people find me a bit naive. Maybe it is a bit naive to believe that a furniture company can change the world, but you know what? I don't care because look at the world history and you will see that naive people, they actually change the world. Hello, this is Owen Bennett-Jones. Welcome to Make or Break, where I speak to remarkable people who reached a moment where they just had to make up their mind. With guests spanning from across the business world, we'll unpack those critical moments and explore how these CEOs and entrepreneurs managed uncertainty. This week, I'll be speaking to Jan Christian Vestra, a third-generation eco-furniture maker who's rethinking the ways cities are built. His family company, Vestra, is one of the most successful of its kind in Europe, but its stated goal is not to sell as many products as possible. Instead, it wants to create public spaces that encourage human interaction and break down political divides. A lot of businesses aspire to make money in a moral way, and it seems almost everyone wants to be seen as ethical, but every once in a while, those values are put to the test. And for Jan, that moment came in 2019 when Vestra won a lucrative contract with a London council. The deal was set to go ahead, but there was a catch. The council had asked him to incorporate hostile designs into his furniture, the kind that went against the very ethos of his company. So, can purpose-driven companies compete in a profit-driven market? And what happens when those ethical values come face-to-face -face with cold, hard cash? So, Jan Christian Vestra, welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me. Tell us a bit more about the company, first of all. What sort of products do you actually sell? So, Wester, we do manufacture and designing street furniture, public benches, bicycle racks, plant boxes, litter bins, all kind of installations you do need in the public realm. So, uh, the Wester design DNA is actually social, colorful, attractive furniture designed to create social meetings around the globe. That's basically what Westra is about. And we're family-owned, established in Norway, 1947. We do have about 70 employees now in five different countries around Europe and in the United States. So you say it's a family business. So you inherited it, basically, from your, from your, from your dad. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. I'm, I'm third generation. So Westra was established by my grandfather back in Haugesund, the Norwegian West Coast, in 1947. So we have been in business for yeah, close to 75 years now. And I took over at the age of uh, 25. My father passed away. He got cancer, ill, and, and, and yeah, passed away. Uh, too early, we haven't even discussed the uh, next generation and what to do next. So that was a rather tough time. And uh, I was not sure what's the right thing to do. I mean, 25 years, we could have found someone outside the business, more uh, experienced, better education, better prepared to this task than I was. But I felt this, you know, responsibility of bringing the family business ahead and making sure that we still kept the same values, same ideas about how to run a business. And to be honest to you, I'm not particularly interested in furniture or design such as. So for me to be able to do this job and to be part of this mission, I asked myself, how can we turn this furniture company into something else, something bigger, something bolder? How can we use our company 
as a tool to change the world more than a tool to increase profits. Our goal is not to sell as many benches as possible. Our goal is not to become rich. Our goal is to change the world one neighborhood at a time. It's pretty remarkable to hear a business person saying they're not that interested in their products. Uh, Can you give us a sense of how the company has grown since you took over? We are actually five times bigger now. We used to be a Norwegian company. Now we have offices in London, New York, Los Angeles, Austin, Berlin. We have uh, projects in more than 30 countries around the planet. And we have been able to grow and still grow in a profitable way. So we have actually increased our bottom line. At the same time, we are doing a more sustainable business than ever before. And that's great because we are sharing 10% of our net income every year by financing sustainable projects around the planet. So by increasing our bottom line, we are also able to donate more money to those who who need them even more than, than we do. So it is possible to create growth and at the same time doing it in a good way for the environment and for people. And I I do think we can do both. Okay, so when this council and you were talking, what what did they want you to do? First of all, they, they liked our furniture, you know, Nordic design, sustainable manufacturing, long warranties, uh, great quality. So everything was nice. They even uh, even um, accepted the, the price and the cost of those high quality products. So the, the problem here was that they wanted us to uh, install objects, so-called hostile designs for preventing homeless people of sleeping on the benches. And uh, we simply refuse to be involved in hostile designs because we don't think that's the way to solve uh, social issues in our society. So we simply turned that project down and said to them that uh, it's simply not democratic to have spikes and other obstacles uh, in your cities designed to keep homeless and weak people away from our public uh, streets. So so we refused to do it. And that was a bit strange, you know, because they told us... uh, okay, we need to choose another supplier then. And we said, yes, please go ahead because we don't want to make money on things which are wrong. And this is feels very wrong to us. So uh, we let down a project worth, um, yeah, we would say it was a lot of money actually involved in that decision. Well, you, now you've said that, you'll have to tell me how much. Yeah, it was close to 2 million Norwegian kuna, which is about uh, 200,000 pounds. Quite a chunky contract for, well, okay, how many benches were involved in that? Yeah, I don't remember now, but I think it was more than more than 100. And just to be clear, what you consider hostile design in the case of a bench would be a an armrest or a spike to prevent someone sleeping on it. Yeah, so hostile designs or hostile architecture is a strategy that uses elements of the built environment to guide or restrict behavior in order to prevent crime, protect property. That's often what they say and often how they argue. But it targets people who use or rely on public space more than others, such as youth and the homeless. And it could be whatever kind of objects designed to keep some people away. Could be spikes, could be uh, armrests, uh, making benches uncomfortable or impractical or even worse, impossible to, to sleep on or to, to, to lay on, uh, and other kind of installations. And we do see hostile designs and hostile architects all over the world, actually. So uh, there are many ways of doing hostile designs, and uh, we are uh, always a bit afraid and, 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 and scared, and we do ask critical questions when our clients 
clients and our customers want us to do any kind of adjustments to our products, which has a bad purpose. Do you, do you ever get into issues within the company where, you know, there are disagreements about what a hostile design actually is? And, you know, there must be nuances in this and people saying, no, you know, you might need an armrest for an elderly person to put their arm on. Yeah, that's true. And we're not against armrests. We are providing a lot of armrests to our benches. But the thing here is, what is the purpose behind the design? Did we design the benches with armrests to make older people be able to get up and stand up? Or did we place the armrests that close to each other that it's not about the elderly, it's about preventing homeless people from sleeping there? And we do have those discussions many times a year in Vestre. So let me put to you what I imagine some of the councillors thought, which would be, look, these are benches. They're meant for sitting on, not for sleeping on. Yeah, that's, uh, you can argue that, but uh, we believe that the outdoors belong to everyone. In Norway, we have this uh, phrase or this concept called allemansretten. It basically is the right to roam. The outdoors belongs to everyone. You can use outdoor spaces if they're public, if they're privately owned, as long as you respect the surroundings, don't damage anything and leave it uh, as you would want to find it. You're free to do whatever you like. And, and, and we like this democratic approach to city development and we want to spread those ideas. So that's the main reason for not doing hostile style designs. And again, if we have created a society where some people can't find a proper place to live, or if uh, we have basic uh, injustices, inequality in our society, that's something we should discuss how we can solve because hostile designs never solve anything. It's just part of, uh, part of the problem. Now then, what happened when you went to the council and said, you know, Great, 200,000 quid, very nice, but no thanks, actually. Uh, I, I refuse to listen to you. What, what, what did they say? First of all, they, I think their first impression was they were a bit uh, surprised because I'm not sure if they have met the company like that before. You know, we are thought to think about... Uh, how we can increase our profits. That's the main thing, you know, the business of business is business is what Milton Friedman told us. And many companies are still believing this is the right thing to do, even though we find it completely wrong. Uh, luckily, there are more and more companies now acting differently, asking themselves how they can contribute to a better world, uh, not only caring about short-term profit motives. So I think that was a surprise to them. The next uh, reaction was that they told us that, okay, but we will still need those benches, so uh, we need to find another supplier. And we told them, yes, you're free to do that, but you should also think about whether this is the right thing to do. Maybe we can try to open your eyes. Maybe we can have a public debate and public discussion about how we solve social issues like this, how we can do something about the real problems behind it instead of just uh, trying to solve it with uh, no solutions. And we are, we are still in dialogue with them. We have been involved in other projects as well without any kind of hostile designs. We're, we're not against them. We are still friends. We're still in, in contact. And I, I think maybe we, in the long run, will change their mindset I mean, when this strange Norwegian company refused to be involved in a very profitable projects, I'm 100% confident that that started some kind of debate among the colleagues. And I'm not sure if they got to the right conclusion, but that's maybe not the most important thing here, as long as they 
have started to think differently. Sometimes you need companies uh, acting differently, stepping up and asking critical questions and, and saying no, actually. And who knows? Maybe next time we are involved in a project together with them, they will not ask us to do any hostile designs because they might finding it a bit embarrassing that a public client actually has a different moral than a private company, which is put up to increase its profits. That's a very good point. You're, you're the private company and they're the public body. So what about colleagues? I mean, when people come in, I don't know, for a job interview and you say, uh, actually, just so you know, in this company, we're not that interested in making money. Uh, what do they say to that? <laughs> yeah. Okay, first of all, of course, we do need to make money because uh, we are creating new jobs. Uh, we are paying tax. We love paying tax, actually, because that means welfare. That means society. That's a part of the contribution. We're not against any kind of tax paying. We don't do any tax uh, planning, for instance. And, of course, we need to be profitable to be able to make new investments. Right now, for instance, we are building the most eco-friendly furniture factory on the planet. And that is by far the biggest investment in the Norwegian furniture industry on decades. And we are doing it during a pandemic and the worst economic recession since the 30s. So, of course, we need to be profitable. But what I'm saying is that that's not our only goal. And we don't want to make money on things which are bad, which uh, is immoral. We want to make money on, on great things. That's the main difference. And uh, your question, I think our colleagues are probably the most proud and inspired and engaged people in the entire design industry worldwide. Because imagine how cool it is to actually be able to let down projects because those projects are against our basic values. And, uh, you know, as when we see how we actually do have impact, when we see how we actually create and change neighborhoods from how it used to be, dull, few people staying there, not attractive, maybe not safe, boring, and we turn them into oases of social interaction or arenas of, for everyday democracy, as we call them. That's the best inspiration we can get, actually. So, in fact, I think what you're saying is it may lead you to have a workforce that's even more highly motivated. I, I would say so. I would say so. And, you know, if you ask young people today... They care more about what kind of impact their next employer has. That's more important for many, many young people now compared to the old questions we are used to answer. How much money do I earn? What are the bonuses? How can we you know, become rich? Now they ask themselves, how can we change the world? So we got all our colleagues on board this mission. We created this idea about how we can do it by actually creating social meeting places around the planet where people meet, where people share ideas, uh, live stories, get to know each other. This is the best way we can avoid us and them thinking in our societies. This is the best way to build mutual trust, community, togetherness, sense of belonging, less polarized debates. I mean, all of those things we do know the world needs more and more. And by simply asking ourselves that question, how can we contribute? That created a lot of energy, inspiration, passion and engagement. If you're enjoying listening to our podcast and feel inspired by some of the leaders you're hearing make tough decisions in make-or-break situations, you may want to equip yourself with the skills and capabilities to make your own difficult decisions. If so, the Open University's micro-credential, 
management of uncertainty, leadership, decisions and actions is designed for you. Visit openuniversity.co.uk forward slash management to find out more. We often hear business leaders say they want to change the world, but there's one element of Jan Christian Vestra's story that makes that statement ring true. In 2011, Jan survived the Utøya massacre. It was a mass shooting that left 77 people in Norway dead, many of them children. It shook Norway to the core. A country of just five million was suddenly dealing with one of the largest terror attacks in European history. I asked him whether that terrible experience shaped his values and, in turn, his business practices. Yeah, it's a difficult question to answer. It's uh, 10 years uh, ago now, but it feels uh, still, it was only a couple of years back. And uh, we lost in total 77 people that day in, in Norway. It was a right-wing terrorist attack against the labor youth movement because uh, this mad guy felt that uh, we were responsible of the multicultural Norway and the multicultural Europe which is in a way correct because we do love diversity. We think diversity is a great thing for all of us. But it was something we couldn't ever imagine happening in the peaceful country of Norway. So I'm not sure actually how that has shaped me, but um, I'm not afraid anymore. That's one thing because it was really hard in the first years after the attack. I do think I've been more aware and even more confident that it is extremely important to prevent and to fight against any kind of us and them thinking, you know, putting people up against each other, but bringing people together to create this sense of mutual trust, belonging, and that we can celebrate diversity as a great thing. I think that has been even more important, not only for myself, but for all of us involved in that terrible day in Norway. So, I'm not sure, but it might be so that Utøya has actually also kind of shaped Vestre, our company, because we are creating social meeting places where people get together. So, And it might be a direct link there. I'm, I'm not sure, actually. It's a difficult question, and it's a difficult thing still to think about. It's, it's very interesting, because you, you do sort of bridge the culture war, I guess, because you are in business, and, and yet you've got these ideas. So... I'm wondering how the culture war relates to what you do. I mean, do you find, well, for example, are there companies who take exactly the opposite approach of you and try and appeal to the other side of the culture war and say, I'll make you a bench with as many spikes as you like <laughs> and, and get business that you way? You can even get them for free. <laughs> uh, no, I haven't seen any of them. Actually, I've seen that our competitors in the UK, in the United States, all across Europe, they are starting acting more and more like Vestre. They are using the same phrases. They are talking about social inclusion. They are talking about sustainability. And you know, that's a great thing. Some people find me a bit naive for two reasons. I have been accused to be some kind of United Nations outdoor furniture division. But you know what? That's a great thing. I feel very proud about that, uh, that uh, statement. 
maybe it is a bit naive to believe that the furniture company can change the world. But you know what? I don't care because look at the world history and you will see that naive people, they actually change the world. So that's one thing. The other thing is that it might be a bit naive to be as open and transparent and share everything as we do. Because everything I'm telling about now is something we share openly. You can download our uh, reports, our sustainability reports. Everything is open. We share everything. We're now not only building the most eco-friendly furniture factory on the planet, it's also the most transparent furniture factory on the planet. No fences, no closed-off areas. Big windows, six meter high, 2,000 square meters of glass facades. Everyone can watch our manufacturing whenever they want, even our competitors. And some people find that naive because they're saying, okay, but you're giving away all of your business secrets. Now they can start doing exactly the same as Vestre and they can be as successful as Vestre. You know what? What a great thing for the environment. What a great thing for people. What a great thing for letting us reaching the sustainable development goals within the next nine years. If we can inspire more companies, more startups, more educators, more organizations, NGOs to step up doing as we are doing. What a great thing for the planet. And of course, that will bring more competition. It will make it harder to us because more companies are doing the same. But then we need to step forward and make sure that we can still lead lead the way. You're in the United States, you say. So if you go to a conservative state in the deep south and say, sharing is caring, that's my business motto, I imagine they might say, right, take your commie ideas back to Europe, if you please. Uh, yeah, might be so. And then we will uh, thank them for their time and wishing them a great future. <laughs> That's totally fine. But you know what? This is interesting because when we established our company in the US, we had the exact same idea as you just told me. That uh, all this uh, talk about, uh, you know, uh, right to roam, allemansretten, welfare state, that we're paying taxes because we do think that uh, public healthcare and public schools is a great thing. All this talk about uh, eco-friendliness, sustainability, climate change, all those things would be perfect in liberal cities and states like New York City, California, San Francisco, and so on. But you know what? Our fastest growing market right now is Texas. And we are involved in a lot of projects in the Midwest and in the Southern states. We recently won a big public tender. That was a small city in Alabama, and we won that competition, and they loved our talk about inclusion, about how we can bring uh, more social thinking into our city development, how we can build mutual trust, how we can defeat injustice, and all those things. So I do think sometimes we have the wrong impression, we have the wrong ideas about what other people believe. Uh, we should actually ask them. We should be open-minded. We should discuss those issues. And my experience is that more and more people around the globe actually share our ideas, share our values. It is a revolution going on right now, not in terms of communist revolution, but in terms of how people's mindsets are changing uh, towards a more sustainable approach, a sustainable way of doing capitalism, a sustainable way of the free market economy, which I will always fight for because I believe in that model. It's the best model on the planet. But 
in a combination with politics, with social responsibility, with sustainable development goals, and by getting more people and companies to understand that, yes, we need to be profitable, but not in a short-term turbo-capitalism approach, but in a way that are also able to solve the other issues we are dealing with today. And I just got one final question about the council. If you were publicly quoted and had shareholders and your responsibility was to maximize profits for them, could you do this? Is it really only possible because you are a family-run business? That's a great question. And I think it's an extremely important question. A few years ago, I would have said, yes, that we can do this simply because we're a family-owned company. I mean, I don't risk anything. But I do think I have changed my mind slightly because I have noticed that more privately owned companies now, even, you know, big international global companies, they are starting to think differently because I do think that more and more companies understand that to be able to still earn money, to be able to still think and care about profits, we do need to change our mindset and we do need to do it in a different way than we are used to, meaning we will need to make sustainable decisions. And you know, I'm really optimistic about the world today. We are facing some major issues, but I do think there are several things to celebrate. There are several things to be happy about and to be optimistic about. If we can get more companies on board, if we can unleash all the creativity and all the you know great ideas out there, could be startups, could be old companies, could be big companies, could be national companies, could be international companies, doesn't matter. But as long as we can get more of them to stepping up, I think we can make major steps in our world the next 10 years. In this series, we've been asking people to draw lessons from their experience. So I presume you're an older man than you were at 25 when you started, and a a wiser man too. So what would you pass on as two or three things you've learned from this? I would say be, you know, confident and proud and ask yourself how you can contribute to a better world, not how fast you can become rich. Because if you are doing the right things, you will still earn money more than enough to be a happy person the rest of your life. But that should not be your primarily goal. The primarily goal should be how you can contribute to a better world. And if you're entering the business world, if you are a startup company, if you have bold, big, revolutionary plans, how you want to change things, Believe in your judgments and follow your heart more than you follow return on investments analysis because your heart is most times telling the truth and telling what is the right thing to do and stand by your decision even if it is costly, even if it is hard to argue about, even if you get criticism, bad comments, some people find you crazy. Don't care about that and stay by the decisions. And uh, after a while, when you have been in business for some year, you feel more comfortable about it. You know, when I took over, I felt this responsibility of proving to the surroundings that we could actually deliver because we did get some 
critical feedbacks, you know, this 25-year-old talking about politics and naive guy want to change the world uh, simply by installing more social benches around the planet. How is that possible? And being 25 years old, that could be very frustrating and it could lead you to start doubting yourself. But now, after some years, when we have actually expanded a lot, we, I mean, I took over a rather small company. Now we are soon to be a big international company. I have proven that this is possible and that brings even more confidence and it makes me even more sure that we did the right thing. And what did you learn about management? That's the most important thing is to unleash all the creativity in your organization and that being a leader is not about taking decisions on behalf of others, but it is actually to trust your surroundings, trust your colleagues, giving them free reign to do whatever they want. I don't think I've said no to any kind of ideas from any of my colleagues during the last eight years. If someone has a great idea, let's do it, and let's do it today or tomorrow. Hang on, you just said you'd never say no to an idea, but what happens if they have a terrible idea? Uh, then I would probably say no to them. So I'm very lucky that I have colleagues who come <laughs> up with great ideas. But but th that was not the point. The point is that, you know, some big organizations, they have built this hierarchy. If you have a great idea, if you're someone, you know, down in the hierarchy, if you have a great idea, it takes months, it could take years before that idea gets to any kind of decision-making process. You lose creativity, you lose momentum, you lose speed, and people stop caring. Because if you are used to having good ideas, but never anything changes, doesn't matter if you have a good idea or not, that kills creativity. So my point is that we should spend more time on following our gut feeling, following what we believe is the right thing to do, instead of making the decision-making processes too slow and, and too boring. Because, you know, most people are clever people. Most people are brave. Most people are passionate. Most people do have good ideas. So why not try to do those ideas? And why not try to implement those ideas? And if it sometimes go wrong because that has happened to us again, okay, we're in it together. Doesn't matter. Next time we try harder. Next time we try better. Next time we take another approach. This is what brings forward future uh, thinking to the companies. Jan Christian Vestra, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Radio Wolfgang for Audi, presented by me, Owen Bennett-Jones, and it featured Jan Christian Vestra. It was produced by John Joe Devlin and Eli Block, and the executive producer was Ellie Di Martino, with support from the Open University. Listener.